Well, greetings and welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church here in northeastern Colorado, Sterling, Colorado. I'm also an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. I really appreciate you listening to our podcast, Understanding Christianity. It's a wonderful opportunity to share with you. I hope you're having a great summer. I hope that uh, you're growing in the Lord. It's been a while since I've come in and recorded um, a standalone podcast, but I wanted to address an issue that comes up from time to time, especially in Baptist circles. I was having a conversation with a person the other day about Reformed theology, and this person's fairly new to Reformed theology, and they're coming from another church, and they're kind of checking us out as a church, and uh, the conversation became uh, talking about the doctrines of grace, and he made the comment, I really don't understand perseverance of the saints. That's the one thing I don't understand, which... I thought was very interesting because a lot of times it's usually limited atonement or unconditional election. Usually for those that are in a baptistic context, uh, perseverance of the saints is usually a given. Now, in Southern Baptist circles, it's not called perseverance of the saints. It's called eternal security. Or the common term that I used when I was growing up, and you still hear this, is once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. And maybe you've, you've used that terminology or you've heard that terminology or you've grown up with that type of theology. And so the question becomes, what's the difference between once saved, always saved, eternal security, perseverance of the saints, some people say preservation of the saints. There's, there's a lot of terms that are used and it's the, the fifth point of Calvinism usually, the point of Can a true believer in Jesus Christ lose his or her salvation or fall away from a state of grace? Once saved, always saved. Eternal security, perseverance of the saints. What's the difference in the terminology? Is there a difference? Well, let me just lay my cards on the table and say I don't like the term once saved, always saved because I think it's been abused over the years and it's really a product of revivalism. Now, what is revivalism? Before I define revivalism, let me just define revival because I do believe that God sometimes in his sovereignty will bring about a period of revival. We've seen that in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Nehemiah. You've seen this in church history with the First Great Awakening, the Protestant Reformation, some movements of God. So what is a revival? Here's my basic definition. Now you can probably find a better one out there. There's tons of books on revival, but here's my definition. A revival is a supernatural work of God where he sovereignly blesses in extraordinary ways the ordinary means of grace in the life of a church or a particular geographic area of churches. In other words, it is God's sovereign prerogative to bring revival. It cannot be manufactured. It cannot be programmed. It cannot be um, conjured up. It's something that God sovereignly does. And it's a blessing of the ordinary means of grace. And what do I mean by the ordinary means of grace? It's It's the regular systematic preaching of God's word. The faithful expository preaching of God's word. 
Discipleship in the local church, teaching, expositing God's word. It's the celebration of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's praying together as a church family. It's the ordinary activities of a faithful church. And when a church faithfully practices the ordinary means of grace, God sometimes in his sovereign providence will bless in an extraordinary way those ordinary means of grace with extraordinary types of results or extraordinary types of blessings. So a revival is something that God alone sovereignly brings about through his ordained means and his ordained timing. As Calvinists, we believe in God's absolute sovereignty in salvation. It's a monergistic work of God from first to last where he unilaterally saves sinners by his grace alone. And so that same concept carries into revival. It's something that God alone does in his sovereignty. That is revival. Now what is revivalism? Revivalism is really historically something that came out of America, usually attributed to Charles Finney in the early to mid-1800s in upstate New York. But let me give you a a definition of revivalism. It's the use of pragmatic means to manufacture decisions or results. In other words, you can plan a revival. You can announce a revival. It, It relies heavily on the right kind of music psychological pressure to get people to come to the front for a public invitation system. The whole goal is to get as many people to visibly respond to the gospel as possible, even if there's no evidence of regeneration or true conversion. And in revivalism, if someone quote-unquote comes forward at the altar or signs a card or says the sinner's prayer, he or she is immediately pronounced as saved. They're told never to question their salvation. There may be a minimalistic gospel presentation, but if they made a quote-unquote decision for Christ, once saved, always saved. They made the decision, they walked forward, they signed the card, they raised their hand, they did some type of visible expression showing that they made a decision for Christ, and therefore, because Baptists in general believe in eternal security, once saved, always saved. That person is never told to question their salvation or examine themselves, because after all, once you're saved, you're always saved. Now, in this revivalism, there's often no mention of the holiness of God or the wrath of God. There's no mention of original sin from birth that renders us guilty before God. There's often no mention of repentance or the need for God to do a supernatural work of regeneration deep in the soul to bring about the new birth. In other words, in revivalism... The approach is to make the gospel as appealing as possible so that the most people will visibly or tangibly or some way outwardly show that they have followed Christ. And because in baptistic circles, we believe that one cannot lose his or her salvation, this practice of revivalism or altar calls or public invitations has created the once saved, always saved mentality. 
And really what it's happened is it's resulted in a lot of false conversions. You know, I've seen this firsthand growing up. I remember at my former church, a lady went forward at the altar call. She was all excited. She was in tears. She signed the card there when the person came down to help her. She was immediately pronounced as saved, introduced to the congregation as a new believer. And then I never saw her again. Never once again showed up in church. Now, do I know if she's saved? I don't know. I can't look into her heart. But she made a a visible public outward manifestation of a decision for Christ based upon an emotional appeal, psychological pressure. She went forward and was proclaimed saved, but then never connected to the church at all after that. I mean, I've seen it in youth ministry. When I was a youth pastor back in the late 90s, early 2000s, the times you'd go to camp or the times you'd go to an event and there was psychological pressure put on teenagers to come to the front, to make a decision for Christ, to stand up for Christ. And so revivalism places a high emphasis on some type of public invitation or public way to show that people, quote unquote, made a decision for Christ. And if that person did make a decision for Christ, they're told never to question their salvation, once saved, always saved. Now, just a little bit of history. The Reformers, Zwingli, Calvin, Luther, Bootser, Bullinger, all the Reformers, and the Puritans did not know of the invitation system or a public appeal or a walk forward to the altar. That was not even practiced in the church. George Whitfield, the great evangelist from England who traveled to America, who saw thousands converted under his ministry, he did not practice the altar call. Even John Wesley, Arminian theology, one who believed strongly in free will, he did not use the invitation system. It really did not come into play until Charles Finney developed what has been historically called the New Measures in the 1800s, around the 1840s or so, in upstate New York. Now, I could do a whole podcast on Charles Finney. He was a Presbyterian who basically denied the Westminster Confession of Faith and came up with his own theology, which is blatantly and patently Pelagian. He denied original sin. He denied justification by faith alone. He denied substitutionary atonement. Um, He said this, quote, A revival is not a miracle, nor dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is a purely philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means. In other words, Finney said, if I just use the right means, the right psychological pressure, the anxious bench, I can use psychological or cultural pressure to bring about the decision that I want to see. There is no supernatural work of God. There's no monergistic regeneration. We just need to use the right means. So he's the one that basically started these new measures, some type of public invitation to show visibly that you, quote-unquote, made a decision for Christ. Now, D.L. Moody, in the mid to late 1800s in Chicago, he was the one that started the idea of having people stand up. So in a church meeting or a revival meeting or, a, or some type of worship service, if you wanted to, quote-unquote, accept Christ for salvation, you would stand up to show that that's what you were doing. 
So he was kind of the first one to, to come up with that. Billy Sunday was really the one that started the altar call, coming forward. He was a very uh, popular evangelist in the early 1900s. He was a former baseball player. Uh, he was basically a, a rowdy, fiery preacher that, was, that used a lot of theatrics, and he, he pretty much perfected the, the public invitation. And, and one of his disciples, one of the ones that came from his school of teaching, was Billy Graham. And we know in the 20th century, uh, Billy Graham perfected the altar call with his Billy Graham crusades where hundreds of people would flock to the front in these stadiums for the public altar call. So the once saved, always saved theology, I believe, comes out of revivalism, which focuses heavily on the public invitation, altar call, some type of visible outward expression that you've made the decision to trust Christ. So how is the once saved, always saved theology markedly different than the reformed understanding of perseverance of the saints? Is there a difference between once saved, always saved and perseverance of the saints? Once saved, always saved is birthed from a shallow understanding of conversion, revivalistic practices, and a nod or a agreement with eternal security. Perseverance of the saints, on the other hand, the Reformed doctrine comes from covenant theology and has a deeper understanding of God's sovereignty in salvation. The Reformed understanding of perseverance of the saints provides a great deal more nuance and depth of understanding of this whole issue of how you continue in the faith once God has sovereignly saved you. Now, let's get some definitions of perseverance of the saints. Let's go to some great Reformed theologians, especially out of the Dutch tradition. Herman Bovink. Herman Bovink says this, quote, the question is not whether believers on their own can maintain or lose their faith. The question is whether God upholds, continues, and completes the work of grace he has begun. Perseverance is not an activity of the human person, but a gift from God. So perseverance of the saints is a gift from God. It is not dependent upon human free will, and we'll see that in just a moment. Okay, how does Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology, how does he define perseverance of the saints? He gives a great definition, as Louis Burkhoff often does. And again, I've said many times on this podcast, if you don't have Louis Burkhoff's systematic theology, go get it. I have the three-volume set, which is, I think it's published through Baker Books or Erdman's. I can't remember. It's in my, it's in my study. But there's a three-volume set of Louis Burkhoff's systematic theology. I consult that regularly. But here's what he says. Quote, Perseverance may be defined as the continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace that is begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. It is because God never forsakes his work that believers continue to stand to the very end. Great, succinct definition. Now, I believe that our confessions 
especially the one that I hold to, the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, which is very similar to the Westminster, which our Presbyterian friends, and if you're a Presbyterian listener, you probably hold to the Westminster standards. I hold to the 1689. But in chapter 17 of the 1689, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 17 is the perseverance of the saints, and there's three paragraphs that cogently and clearly and comprehensively, don't you like the three C's there I did? That just came off my tongue as a, as a pastor that's been alliterating his sermons for many years, gives us some great nuance, I think, some great depth to this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. So let me read this for you. So this is paragraph one. Those God has accepted in the beloved, and that's Jesus, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, and given the precious faith of his elect, can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. They will certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved because the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. Therefore, he still brings about and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the spirit that lead to immortality. Even though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet these things will never be able to move the elect from the foundation and rock to which they're anchored by faith. They felt sight of the light and love of God may be clouded and obscured from them for time through their unbelief and the temptation of Satan, yet God is still the same. They will certainly be kept by the power of God for salvation, or they will enjoy their purchased possession for they are engraved on the palms of his hand and their names have been written in the book of life from all eternity. Now that's a wonderful statement and I love the Trinitarian nature of it regarding our salvation. Those whom God has accepted in the beloved. Okay, this talks about how the Father has sovereignly chosen us, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, So the Holy Spirit has done a work of regeneration calling, brought us to faith, united us to Christ, and we've been given the gift of faith. Faith even from ourselves is not something we produce, it's something God gives to us. And because we've been chosen by the Father, we've been purchased specifically by the Son, we've been effectually called and regenerated by the Spirit and given the gifts of faith as a result of the sovereign work of the triune God, We as the elect can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. We will persevere in the end. God will make sure that we are saved from first to last. And he will nourish us in faith and repentance. And he will give us grace upon grace. And oftentimes this is through the means of grace. The preaching of God's word. Prayer. Fellowship. But then there's a a caveat. The, The realistic aspect of what we deal with in a sinful world in our own sinful flesh it says storms and floods may rise and beat against us things may come trials may come we may be overwhelmed by temptation that that would tend to want to move us off the rock of our salvation and these things will come against us and for a time we may feel like God's absent he's not there that he's obscured from us. We may get discouraged and despondent. We may even go through times of unbelief. We may be tempted by Satan. And those things may come against us as trials and tribulations and periods of despondency and doubt and unbelief. But 
because God has, a, has chosen us and effectually called us and sanctified us and, and done this work of salvation in us, we will be kept by God for salvation. Our names are written on the palms of God's hands. That's from Isaiah. And we've been written in the Lamb's book of life from all eternity. So the first paragraph is basically a Trinitarian understanding of how God has saved us from first to last. The Father elected, the Son purchased, the Holy Spirit regenerated and gave us the gift of faith. And because the triune God has worked sovereignly to bring about our salvation in eternity past and in a point in time at our regeneration and conversion, he will continue to keep us saved to the end. That's paragraph one. Now, if paragraph one were all that the confession had, it would still be a wonderful document describing or an explanation describing perseverance of the saints. But yet, there are some questions that come up. And I think paragraph two really addresses some of the things that we see happen in our own lives when we observe other people. This is where the doctrine of perseverance of the saints is more fleshed out, is more robust than just a once saved, always saved theology that comes out of revivalism. So let's really deal with paragraph two and let's, um, let's unpack it. So here's paragraph two. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God, the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with him, the oath of God, the abiding of his spirit and the seed of God within them and the nature of the covenant of grace from which all arises also the certainty and infallibility thereof. Okay, again, Trinitarian understanding of salvation comes into the confession, Trinitarian understanding of how this works in perseverance of the saints. So let's just unpack some of the statements that are made in paragraph two. The very first thing that's stated there is that this perseverance of the saints depends not upon our own free will. That's very important. This is where we differ with Arminians. The Arminian view says you got in by your free will. You have to persevere by your free will. And if for some reason your free will wants to walk away or get out of salvation, you can choose to do that. And so our confession is very clear to say there is no free will involved at all in this. You were not using your libertarian free will to get in in the first place. It was something you were dead in your sins. You were a slave to sin. You were totally unable to repent and believe on your own. So the Holy Spirit had to regenerate you, cause you to be made alive, cause you to be born again, grant you the gifts of faith so that you would believe. So you did not get in by your free will and you do not stay in by your free will. Now, what the confession in in paragraph two does here is it moves to five grounds or five reasons or five foundations for why we will receive our eternal inheritance on the day of salvation, why we won't fall away, why we will persevere to the end, why God will sustain us. Okay? Here's the first. It's based upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the unchangeable love 
of the Father. Again, it goes back to God's eternal and unchangeable decree. God is immutable in and of himself. He cannot change, and his decree does not change. So if God has decreed before the foundation of the world for you to be saved, he predestined you, he chose you for salvation, then it is a done deal. God has sovereignly chosen you, and so you did not get in by your free will. God chose you to be saved, and because God chose you to be saved, his decree is immutable, unchangeable, that you will continue to be saved. And what's the source of this decree? It's God's free and unchangeable love. God's love for you is unchanging. God loved you in eternity past. That's what the word foreknow means. When Paul says, those whom God foreknew, it doesn't just mean God knew about you in general or God had knowledge of you. Obviously, he does. But that word carries the idea of loving in a very intimate way. God has sovereignly loved his elect before the foundation of the world. And because of that sovereign and unchangeable love, he sovereignly and unchangeably predestined you as adopted sons and daughters for this salvation. 2 Timothy 2.19, God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. So the first grounding is that it's based upon the eternal and unchanging sovereign decree of God the Father. The Father has chosen you. The Father will keep you saved. Now the second statement moves to, again, Trinitarian understanding here, the efficacy and merit intercession of Jesus Christ and our union with him. The second aspect focuses on the work of Jesus Christ the Son. So, the efficacy and merit of the Son. So we think about the, what, what God the Father has given to Jesus the Son. John 6, 37-40. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Father has given the elect to the Son. The Son, Jesus, died specifically for the elect, and he is now, as our high priest, making intercession for us at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And so, not only does the electing grace of God the Father keep us saved, but the work of Christ on the cross specifically for us in his substitutionary atonement secured our eternal redemption, but even so, because Jesus is alive and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, he's our one mediator making intercession for us. He is interceding on our behalf, sustaining us, and, and, and being there as our, as our go-between, and then we have union with him. When we are justified by faith alone and we are regenerated we are brought into permanent union with Christ, a union that cannot be separated, a union that cannot be undone. The third statement is that this is based upon the oath of God. 
God made an oath. Not only did the Father sovereignly choose us, not only did Jesus the Son die for us specifically and is now interceding for us and we are in union with him, but God made an oath. And we get this in Hebrews 6.17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Now, this is a, a complex passage of scripture in the book of Hebrews, but basically what the writer of Hebrews is arguing is that because God is unchanging in his nature, that would be enough. That, that would be enough to have us be secure in our salvation, that God is unchanging in his nature. But the unchanging God made an unchanging oath, a promise a covenant to his people that he would be their God and we would be his people and God cannot break his oath. God cannot break his word. So if God says, you're mine, you're saved, it's a done deal. It's an oath promised to us. And the fourth statement, again, Trinitarian, moves to the Holy Spirit. It says, the abiding of his spirit and the seed of God within him. So the Holy Spirit has been given to us to live inside of us to guarantee our eternal inheritance. One of the best statements that Jesus makes about this is in John 14. John 14, 16 through 17. Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Notice what Jesus says there. He will be with you forever. In the original language, this is continual action. The Holy Spirit will always continually be with us forever. The word with means alongside. And then verse 17, he will dwell with us. He will take up residence in our hearts. In the original language, this is what's called a timeless present tense verb. This word's important because it does not mean that the Holy Spirit will come and go. He'll, he'll dwell in you and he'll leave. He'll dwell in you and he'll leave. No, the way it's worded in the original language is that this indwelling, this living inside of us is permanent. It's forever. Once the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you, he will never leave you. Verse 17, he will be in you. It's interesting, when you look at that passage of Scripture in John, there are three Greek prepositions used to describe our relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now, in your English translations, you may look at them and just kind of glance over them. He will be with you. He will be in you. What's the difference between with you and in you? Jesus could have used the same prepositions all three times. But John, the gospel writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, used three different prepositions to describe the work of the Holy Spirit. He will be with you. That's the Greek preposition meta. That implies fellowship. He will reside in you in deep fellowship. He will be with you. It's another Greek preposition, para. That means his personal presence as the divine person. The Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity will dwell in you. And then he will be in you. That's another Greek preposition, ain, inside of you as the source of life. So if you're a Christian, then you have the fullness of the Holy Spirit living in you. You don't have to wait down the road for some second blessing or another experience to get more of the Holy Spirit. His seed and his presence abides in you. And this idea of his seed abiding you comes from 1 Peter 1, 23-25. Since you've been born again, 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. We've been born again by the abiding seed in us, which is the word of God, but also the, the living permanent residence of the Holy Spirit. So, Statement number one, God the Father's sovereign decree, his unchanging love, his electing purpose. Number two, the work of Jesus Christ, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, in the cross, in our union with him, as our high priest making intercession for us. Number three, God's oath, his unchanging oath and promise he made to us in covenant. Number four, the Holy Spirit third person of the Trinity, given to live in us permanently, guaranteeing that we will be saved to the end. And then the fifth statement. This is all based upon the covenant of grace, which is really a a way of tying up this whole idea of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the covenant of grace. God has entered into a covenant with us by grace alone, where God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all working in perfect unity, bring about our salvation from first to last. So that is paragraph number two, a further explanation as to why we are eternally secure. What's the grounding for it? And again, it's Trinitarian in nature. Now, here's a question that should come up. The what, what happens if you see somebody backsliding? Or what happens if you see someone who professed to be a Christian, once saved, always saved, and they never show up at church again? What happens when you look at someone who's walking in rebellion who claims to be a Christian? How do, how do you deal with that? Well, that's where paragraph three comes in. So the doctrine of perseverance of the saints does not mean that we won't ever backslide or fall into periods of major disobedience. So here's how paragraph three answers this question. All right, here we go. Paragraph three. They, and it's talking about God's elect, true believers, they may fall into grievous sins and continue in them for a time due to the temptation of Satan in the world, the strength of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation. In doing so, they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit. Their graces and comforts become impaired. Their hearts are hardened and their consciences wounded. They hurt and scandalize others and bring temporary judgments on themselves. Nevertheless, they will renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. Now, let's unpack some of the implications from paragraph 3 because, again, the doctrine of perseverance of the saints is a lot more nuanced, a lot more um, fleshed out, dealing with real issues that we observe in some biblical truth that just the doctrine of once saved, always saved doesn't give us. So let's look at some teachings from paragraph number three. Well, it begins with the whole idea that the unholy trinity is real. Now, what's the unholy trinity? The world, the flesh, and the devil. We may fall into grievous sins due to the temptation of Satan, the world, and the corruption remaining in us. The world, the flesh, the devil. These three work together as the unholy trinity 
to, at times, lead us, tempt us, lure us into sin. And so we need to be realistic that just because you're saved, you're not immune to falling into grievous sin. Not just regular sin, but grievous sin. Also, God has ordained means for us to grow. You, you can neglect the means of your preservation. Now, what does it mean to neglect the means of your preservation? Well, it doesn't go into what these means are, but these are the ordinary means of grace. We talked about earlier. What are the ordinary means of grace that God has ordained as nourishment for your soul to help you grow? Do you know what these are? The ordinary means of grace are attending the Lord's Day worship to sit under the expository preaching of God's word week in and week out. It is being in Bible study with other believers. It is personal Bible study. It's, it's times of prayer. It's corporate prayer. It's fellowship with the body. It's being around other believers for strength. And when you neglect that, when you stay out of church, when you're not under sound preaching, when you're not in the word, when you're not in prayer, you're neglecting the things that God has given you to grow in grace. And when you neglect those, you are more prone to temptation and falling into sin. It's a no-brainer. Let me just ask you a question. The times that you've been disconnected from church, the times you've been in isolation, the times that you've been out of church and, and away from other believers are not those the times that you fall into major sin or you fall into discouragement or you kind of land yourselves into, into periods of disobedience versus the times when you're highly connected to the life of the church. And paragraph three also talks about the reality that when you do sin you can grieve the holy spirit that comes from ephesians 4 30 do not grieve the holy spirit of god by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption i don't know all the implications of what this means but i do know that when we sin it does bring displeasure upon god and it grieves the holy spirit it doesn't mean we lose our salvation it doesn't mean that we're outside of god's love it doesn't mean that that somehow god stops loving us it just means that God is displeased with what we're doing and it grieves the Holy Spirit. And one of the things it also says here is we can lose the joy of our salvation and feel distance from God. It says their graces and comforts become impaired. In other words, we can go through periods of struggle, through disobedience, where we don't feel the presence of God. We feel the weight of our sin. We lose the joy of our salvation. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah killed and Nathan the prophet came to him and tells him the parable and says, you are the man, and then David breaks down and repents, he writes Psalm 51, and in Psalm 51, 8 through 12, you hear David's heart here. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, this is not an Old Testament passage that teaches that you can lose your salvation by the Holy Spirit departing from you. This is, this is Old Testament based upon what we just saw with Jesus teaching us in the New Covenant that the Holy Spirit lives in believers permanently. But what you can lose is the joy of your salvation, the comforts of being in God's grace. And that's why David says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. So just because you're saved 
And God will preserve you to the end, and he'll make sure you endure to the end. Doesn't mean that you can't fall into periods of disobedience where you lose the joy of your salvation. You don't lose your salvation, you lose the joy of your salvation. And you can also go into a period of having hard hearts and wounded consciousnesses. Psalm 32, 3-4, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of the summer. Maybe you've experienced this before where you're in a period of disobedience and, and you gave in to a sin and at first you were shocked by what you did. Why in the world did I do that? I can't believe I fell into that sin. But then it became easier to fall into the next time and the next time. And after a while, you're no longer shocked. Your conscience has been wounded and your heart has become hard and you just feel numb to conviction, and you continue on your merry way sinning, and it doesn't really bother you. You can genuinely be saved and go through a period of disobedience and get to the point where you're not bothered by your sin. That's a very dangerous place to be, to not be bothered or grieved by your sin. Psalm 73, 21 through 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Brutish and ignorant. When, when you're in major sin, you don't want to hear God's word. You are ignorant of the things of the Lord. You have a hard heart. And the psalmist says, I was a beast towards you. You're acting like an animal on your instincts. And genuine believers, paragraph 3 tells us, Genuine believers can, when they fall into grievous sin, bring public scandal upon themselves, upon a family, and upon a church. Now, let's go back to the story with David. When Nathan the prophet confronts him, listen to what Nathan the prophet says to King David. And Nathan the prophet is speaking as the, as the mouthpiece of, of the Lord God. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Verses 8 through 15. And I gave your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you've utterly scorned the Lord, the child who's born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David does confess his sin. David does repent. David does come clean before the Lord. David is contrite over sin, but he still brought public scandal upon Israel, upon the nation, upon his own family, and he had to deal with the consequences. The sword would never depart from his family. From that point forward, there would be enmity, there would be warfare, there would be violence in his own family. And so 
just because you are genuinely saved does not mean that you won't fall into grievous sins and bring scandal upon your life. It doesn't mean you lose your salvation. It doesn't mean that God has stopped loving you. It just means that you may have to deal with the consequences of your sins. And then finally, we can be disciplined by God. Here's the point. You, you see two different, let, let's talk about this from the Arminian's perspective and from the Calvinistic perspective, but we, let's say we observe the same reality. Let's say you know someone who publicly professed faith in Christ. They were either baptized, they joined a church, they publicly professed faith in Christ, they said they were a Christian, but now they're living in flagrant disobedience. Okay, for the Arminian, their view is that person has walked away. They've either lost their salvation or they've chosen to walk away. They are living in disobedience. They will die having lost or walked away from the salvation that they once had. Whereas the Reformed view says, we see that same person. Now, they may or may not be saved, but here's the point. If they're genuinely saved, if God has sovereignly chosen them and Jesus has specifically died for them and the Holy Spirit has regenerated them because of God's covenant of grace and his oath and they're truly saved and they're living in disobedience, God will discipline them to bring them back to himself. God will discipline them to bring them back to himself. It may be painful, It may bring trials upon your life, but if you're truly one of the elect, God will bring you back. And that's why the last thing says there, nevertheless, they will renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. There may be temporary judgments. Now, temporary judgments. Notice the word temporary. It doesn't mean that you lose your salvation and you go to hell. A temporary judgment just means God may discipline you. You may have to live with the consequences of your sin. But if you're truly saved, if you're truly the elect, you will renew your repentance and you will persevere to the end. You will truly repent. Sam Waldron, he's written a really good book, um, a modern exposition of the 1689 Confession of Faith. He says this, just as the elect will not die before they are converted, so the regenerate will not die before they repent. This is the vital argument against Satan's whisper. If you sin, you can always repent. Yes, and you will. But to truly repent means to vomit up the sin. There will always be more misery than pleasure in sin for a true Christian. What is the lie that Satan says to a believer? Continue in sin, you can always repent. Continue in sin, God will always accept you back. Continue in sin because after all, once saved, always saved. You've got your fire insurance. You're not going to hell. So send your little heart out. It doesn't really matter how you live because after all, God loves you. God saved you. Once saved, always saved. You made the decision. You walked the aisle. You went forward at the altar. You raised your hand. So therefore, you're in. Now live however you want. That's the lie of Satan. That's antinomianism. That's license. A true believer will repent. And I love the way Sam Waldron uses this. It's, it's, it's Puritan terminology. When you go read the Puritans, they often talk about vomiting up sin. Sin is so gross in your life, like something that is just churning in your stomach that you have to vomit up the sin. You hate the sin. You don't want to be in the sin. It's causing you misery. You are miserable in your sin. 
until you repent. That's the mark of a true Christian. Now again, this is a Trinitarian understanding of perseverance of the saints. This is how the confession addresses it. This is how Scripture addresses it. Before the foundation of the world, the Father chose His people to be saved. Then Jesus the Son specifically died for those people on the cross and secured their eternal redemption and now makes intercession for them at the right hand of the Father. Then the Holy Spirit came at a point in time and effectually called those people, regenerated those people, and gave them the gifts of repentance and faith in the new birth. And so from first to last, in eternity past and into eternity future, salvation is a work of the triune God. Philippians 1, 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus says this in John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Just a few things there. I give them eternal life. You don't choose to get eternal life. You don't choose salvation. Jesus gives you eternal life. And you will never perish. That's what's called a double negative in the Greek text. You can kind of translate it, you will never, never perish. And no one will snatch them out of Christ's hand, and no one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. You are in the double grip, I often say. You're in the grip of the Father and the Son, the double grip. Because Jesus and the Father are united in one. They're in purpose in saving you. We think about the role of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13-14. In Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit Himself is our guarantee. And the Holy Spirit can't cease to exist. Once He comes to live inside of you, He always lives inside of you. Colossians 3, 3-4. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you'll also appear with him in glory. You're hidden with Christ. That's an interesting word Paul uses there. It's in the perfect tense, which means that at one point you were hidden in Christ at your salvation, but you continue to be hidden. And this idea of hidden means that you are protected, you are guarded, and you will continue to be guarded in this union with Christ, who's your very life. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This undefiled, imperishable, unfading inheritance God has kept for you. So it's on permanent reserve for you. You're not going to lose that inheritance. And in the meantime, until you get there, God is guarding you through faith. He's guarding you. Some translations say shielding you. It was used to describe an army of troops used to protect a city from an oncoming enemy. And so God is guarding us 
through faith for that salvation to be revealed. 1 Corinthians 1, 7-9, Our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end? Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ will sustain you to the end. You don't sustain yourself to the end. You don't use your free will to get yourself to the end. Christ will sustain you to the end. He will make sure you reach salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. What is God faithful to surely do? To keep you blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. To keep you saved. To preserve you to the end. Jude 1, 24 and 25, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He's able to keep you guiltless to the end. So, let me close with a powerful quote from none other than Charles Spurgeon. Listen to the penetrating words of Spurgeon. I do not believe we can preach the gospel if we do not preach justification by faith without works, nor unless we preach the sovereignty of God in his dispensation of grace nor unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah. Nor do I think we can preach the gospel unless we base it upon the special and particular redemption of his elect and chosen people which Christ wrought out upon the cross. Nor can I comprehend a gospel which lets saints fall away after they are called and suffers the children of God to be burned in the fires of damnation after having once believed in Jesus. Such a gospel I abhor. If ever it should come to pass that sheep of Christ might fall away, my fickle, feeble soul, alas, would fall a thousand times a day. Spurgeon links the Trinity there, the Father's electing love, the Son's particular redemption, and intercession, the work of the Holy Spirit in calling us, and says, based upon the triune work of God in the gospel, he abhors any type of theology that says that we can fall away after God sovereignly did all of this. And he says, if we could fall away, for some reason if we could fall away, he says, my fickle, feeble soul would fall a thousand times a day. If left to ourselves without the immutable and unchanging and sovereign work of God, we would fall a thousand times a day because our hearts are fickle. Our hearts are prone to wander. We are weak. We are sinful. But praise be to God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our great God, keeps us saved, never forsakes his own, guarantees that he will sustain us to the end blameless on that day we will never fully nor finally fall away from a state of grace but we shall be saved to the end god will guard us by his sovereign grace from first to last to the end that my dear listeners is wonderful news and that is the powerful doctrine of perseverance of the saints as opposed to 
the shallow, once saved, always saved, that comes out of revivalism and decisionism that never really gets into the depths of what the triune God has done sovereignly in our great salvation. Well, I hope this has been an encouragement to you. I hope if you have doubts or you've struggled with this whole doctrine that this teaching has helped you really understand the P in the tulip acrostic, the perseverance of the saints. And so I would love for you to give us a positive review and rating on um, Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to this. Maybe you listen to it on Google. Uh, we, we love that you listen to us. You can send us uh, some emails as far as future topics you'd love for us to, to deal with. And so you can go to seancole.net to find all of my contact information. We really do appreciate all the people that listen to us really all over the world. We thank you so much. Until next time, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus.